today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. What is doubt? Doubt means two. Doubt means two things. Doubt in, in the English world would be someone who has a foot in two different camps. The Chinese talk about doubt and they say it's having one foot in one boat and another foot in another boat. It is being double-minded. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is not a leap into the dark. It is a confident leap into the light. The truth is, even believers deal with doubt. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Doubt, about how doubt creeps into everyone's life and how you can find power to overcome your doubt through God's Word. That's coming up in just a moment on The Winning Walk. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Doubt. Principle, there'll be storms in every life. Usually after a gigantic holiday like Christmas or Easter, you begin to read how atheists and agnostics say we live in a pluralistic society. We want a holiday set aside for us. Have you heard that? And someone responded and said, well, we already have a day set aside for you. It's April the 1st. It's April Fool's Day. Psalm chapter 14 says, A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But yet in our culture, we have people who are atheists. I have met only a few atheists, really, to sit down and talk with them. You can be an atheist and have a philosophical belief that puts you in that camp. There's another group called agnostics, and I meet a lot of people who claim to be agnostics. So let me give you a definition of agnosticism. Let me see how this works with you. Can you see it on your screen? It says an agnostic is one who denies that we can know the absolute or infinite or prove or disprove anything beyond natural phenomena of the universe, though such may exist. Now let me give you a simple definition of agnosticism. Agnosticism, the term was coined in 1889 by Huxley, one of the early Huxleys. And he said he didn't know. He didn't know if there were a God or not. And the definition has expanded. An agnostic is someone who says that unless you can prove by the material universe that there is a God, I will not believe that there is. Unless you can prove by stuff we can taste and measure and handle that there is a God, I will not believe that there is a God. Now, there are all kinds of atheists. Uh, there is different categories of atheists, but there are also all kinds of agnostics. And this is the posture that a lot of people take to say, well, I just have an intellectual problem and I have trouble believing that there is a God and therefore, you know, I, I just really don't know. There is, first of all, the indifferent agnostic. 
indifferent agnostic. This is someone who says, don't bother me with God. You know people like this. Don't talk about church. Don't talk about Christ. I'm just going to live my own life as best I can and do my own thing, follow my own pursuits, think my own thoughts. I'm a free thinker. Don't bother me with all that stuff. I'm indifferent to spiritual things, the things that relate to God. There's a lot of people who respond to you like that. They respond to me like that. There's only one problem of being an indifferent agnostic. That's when the bottom falls out of your life. That's when an SOS comes. And I've seen so many indifferent agnostics have a wake-up call when the ox is in the ditch, when they have situations they have to face in which they have no answers. So God deals with the indifferent agnostics. But also there are other kinds of agnostics that come along. There's the searching agnostic. You know the kind of person who says, well, I'm open. If there's a God, I'm willing to read. I'm beginning to talk about it. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. And I'm studying this religion and that faith and this understanding and that understanding. I'm into mysticism. I'm into Gnosticism. And I'm just open. It is a searching agnostic. If that happens to be you, I've got good news for you. God is searching for you far more than you think you're looking for him. And when you find him, you really haven't found him. The truth is he has found you. So I have that on good authority. Those who are genuinely open to whether or not there is a God or there is not a God, I've got good authority that you will bump head on into him. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open unto you. That's the words of our Lord. So the searching agnostic, relax, you'll run right straight into God if you have an open mind and an open heart. But then there is the dogmatic agnostic. This is someone who says about God, I don't know if there's a God. You don't know if there's a God. Nobody knows there's a God, and nobody can ever know there's a God. Now, truly, someone who says this, they move from being agnostic. The bottom line is they become an atheist because they close their mind and they close their heart and they've ended the search. There are many ways we could talk about and verify the fact that there is an almighty God. One way is called the teleological argument. This is the argument from design. It's the concept that you get. Well, here is the creation there has to be a creator. Here's a design. There has to be a designer. The one who is president of the New York Scientific Society said, let me tell you how I have rationally come to understand that there's a God. He said, take 10 coins, number the coins right on there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Take those 10 coins and put them in your pocket. He said, now shuffle them around and reach in there, and he said, the odds of you pulling out the coin that has a number one on it is one in 10, right? One in 10. He said, put it back in your pocket, shuffle it around. He said, the odds that you will pull out a coin that has a two on it, he said, the odds are one in 100. He said, now you take all those coins and shuffle it around, and the odds that you will reach in your pocket, 
10 times and pull out 10 coins in sequence, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, the odds are one in 10 billion. What is this all about? It is exactly what George Gallup said. He said, I can prove God statistically. He said, you look at the human body, all that has to come together to function, to move, to live, to bring life out of that which is not life. He said, statistically, to try to figure that up, that is a monstrosity. It is beyond anybody's understanding. So we have a creation, we have a creator, we have a design, we have a designer. And the old idea, if you're in a printing shop and there's an explosion, boom, and you look over and there's a copy of the Declaration of Independence. What are the odds of that happening? <laughs> or you have a 10,000-piece puzzle and you jump all the pieces together and how many times would you have to throw them up where they all landed in the proper place? <laughs> now, those who deal in statistics and logic, they will tell you there is a number out there somewhere that so many times it could happen. The bottom line, those who say, I'll not believe unless I have scientific evidence, don't understand science or don't understand philosophy. Science and philosophy cannot prove anything absolutely. Say it again. Science and philosophy cannot prove anything absolutely. There are only a few things that can be proven absolutely. A few mathematical theorems and maybe some few laws of logic like the law of non-contradiction, which the answer is built in the question. So we have to understand the scientists would say overwhelming probability that this is true, but absolute truth I cannot give to you. So the so-called agnostics have got a proposition and a proposal that is totally invalid by nature of what they ask for. And a lot of us will say, I'll not believe in God because I have emotional problems, because I have intellectual problems. The Bible says that's not the issue. It's really never emotional. It's never intellectual. It is moral. It is moral. Huxley had it right. Huxley said, when I went in my first class, philosophy 101, he said, I went in with a presupposition I wanted to prove that life did not have meaning and there is no God. He said, I went in with that mindset. He said, why? Because I was dating a girl. And he said, I knew I wouldn't marry her, but I wanted to sleep with her. Therefore, I knew if there were a God, he had a moral principle of living, that that would be illegitimate. He said, therefore, I wanted to prove that life had no meaning and there was no God because I already had a commitment to my own hedonistic lifestyle of pleasure and doing my own thing. You say, I can't believe in that. Therefore, you are believing in something over here is the reason you can't believe in that. Huxley was an honest man. He said, I believe in this hedonistic lifestyle of pleasure. Therefore, that's the reason I don't want to believe, regardless of how much evidence you put out before me, that there is indeed a God. Now, we come to a little part of our scripture that deals with faith and deals with doubt. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. It's sandwiched between Jesus feeding 5,000 on a mountain by the Sea of Galilee, 
And then how the apostles went on the other side of the mountain and, they, and Jesus began to heal multitudes of people. It's between feeding and healing. And look at this story. It tells us a lot about doubt and skepticism and once again introduces us to faith. Look in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and we'll look 22, 24, and this verse tells us that in life there will be storms. Did you get that? In life, in everybody's life, there will be storms. Now, you may have heard on television that if you think positively, you have a good life, a moral life, you'll be healthy, wealthy, wise, and, and you'll not have any storms, but they don't get that from the Bible. That's sort of some kind of new age kind of positive thinking that's twisted here in our world. But look what it says. Jesus says, immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Verse 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, Jesus was there alone. Verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves and for the wind was contrary. Did you get that? Jesus told his apostles to get in the boat, and he sent them right in the middle of a storm. You know, I thought if I were doing God's will, living a good life, coming to church and tithing and praying that, man, I'd not have any storms in my life. My goodness, how can that be? But Jesus, these people, the apostles were perfectly obedient. He says he made them get in the boat. Why? You have to read the parallel accounts to get the whole story. It's found in Mark 6 and in, and in John 6. It tells, it elaborates on this particular thing that's happening there as Jesus, we're getting ready for him to walk on water, you know. And what's he saying? They wanted to make him king, a king, a, a physical king. And he, did, he didn't want his apostles to buy into it. He said, hey, we're out of here. Get in the boat. Go on the other side. And that was a temptation for Jesus. And we will see in the next verse we'll look at that this was in the fourth watch. What's the fourth watch? They divided the night into six, six o'clock to nine was the first watch, nine to 12, second watch, 12 to three, third watch, three to six, the fourth watch. This was between three and 6 a.m. in the morning. And they had been roaring for six and seven hours trying to get that boat. The wind was in their faith, the lightning, the storm, the waves, Man, they were overcome. They'd been rowing that boat that long, and Jesus had been praying in a mountain. And you can go to Galilee, and he could look down and see, and he knew they were in the middle of a catastrophic storm. Now, what is this about? When Jesus knows we're in a storm, life, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have storms. Have you noticed that? Have you picked up on that already? It's a part of the givenness of life. Now, we have to ask, what's the purpose? What's going on in this storm? Why this timeout? Why this situation? Why this challenge? Why this problem with a child or a husband or a father? Why all this? Why this storm? And we have to listen and discover the meaning of the storm. Jesus was praying. Why was he praying? Oh, he was praying. Why did he get alone by himself? First of all, he had to rest. 
His humanity was there. He had to get perspective, and he had to pray because this was a temptation not unlike the temptation he faced in the wilderness, remember? Satan took him and said, you can have the kingdoms of the world. The people were having, saying, you can be king. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and now he prayed for six or seven hours to make sure he knew the purpose of his life. There will be storms in every life, but I want you to see the next section. You know what it tells us? He said, God, Jesus Christ will meet us in the middle of every storm. That's the beautiful part. Verse 25, and the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. Principle, there'll be storms in every life. But to those in the family of the Lord, Jesus will meet you in the middle of that storm. And many times as he comes in the middle of the storm, we don't recognize him. He doesn't come in the way we thought. He didn't answer our prayer in this particular area. He answers it later to answer it better. And we don't understand, but he comes to us in the storm. And they didn't even know it. How many times has Christ come close to you? How many times has the Holy Spirit dealt with my life, your life, directed us, moved us, and we didn't even know it? We, we look back in retrospect and say, oh, I see it, but we didn't know it when he was there in the middle of that storm. He always comes to us in the storm, though many times we don't even recognize him. And when he comes, what did he say? When they were frightened, he said, it is I. Literally, he's saying, it is Jehovah. He's saying, it is the I am who has come. Does that not settle us down in the middle of a storm when the I am is present? That's the personal name for, for God. I am has come. Moses, the bush was burning, remember? Moses said, that's an unusual bush. I'm going to go over and look at it. A bush is burning. It is not burning up. It is not being consumed. And he went over, and, and, and God was in the bush. And so Moses bowed down. He said, who are you, God? He says, I am that I am. Literally in the Hebrew, you know what God said? He said, I am. <sighs> he said, I am breath. I am life. I am. <sighs> I am that I am. I love Major Ian Thomas deals with this story classically. He said, a lot of people say, boy, that, that, that was some bush, you know, burning up fire. And, and he said, boy, that was some special bush there. Ian Thomas says, no, nah, no, it wasn't some special bush. When God is in a bush, any old bush will do. <laughs> when God is there in a storm, the life, the, the I am is there. Man, that is comfort indeed. That is understanding indeed, even though many times we don't understand how he's working in the middle of your storm and how he's operating in the middle of our storm or what he's doing in the middle of the storm, let alone why he sent us out of the storm in the first place. Peter's response to the storm was much like you and I respond. I'm going to get ahead of myself and tell you what it was. For a while he was walking, for a while he was sinking. Isn't that like you and me? A storm comes, I'm walking, I'm on top, and then I'm sinking. Oh, I'm sinking, and then I'm walking. 
This is how so many of us the believers conduct ourselves in the storms of life, isn't it? Look what happened. First of all, we have Peter's tentative faith. I like this. Verse 28, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, he didn't know, wind, rain, fog, storm, lightning, waves, he couldn't see, if it is you, command me to come to you on water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, some people criticize Peter and say, well, gosh, well, he's kind of impulsive. See, Peter was A-D-D-D-D-D-D. You got to remember that. <laughs> and so he's kind of impulsive. And, he, and Peter, and, and, Jesus, and he said, if you are the Lord, if, if you are the, the I am, and Peter just, can you imagine him stepping out of that boat? I thought about that a long time. Man, I can see Peter. If, and he holds on to the boat side, he steps out and steps out and he gets out and says, Lord, come. Can't, can't you see him? And then finally he looked at Jesus. I talk about Paul in Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And now Pete is walking on the water. He is looking at Jesus. He's on top of that storm. He's above that storm. He's looking at Jesus, and Jesus is with him. And finally, but he looks away, and a big wave comes. <laughs> Man, he, here's the lightning flash. And he looks away from Jesus, and he begins to sink. And so we see his tentative faith becomes fearful doubt. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, and what a great phrase, Lord, save me. See, he got it right. Lord, if it's you, Lord, save me. He had the right title, didn't he? Lord, commander-in-chief, head CEO, the bottom line, the one in charge, Lord, master, Lord, save me. And then look at the response of Jesus. Here's a shout, Lord save me. And then look at the response. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? There is that tentative faith that is their fearful doubt. And then there's a shout, Lord save me. And he stretched out his hand. That's what Jesus does. He just stretched out our hand. He said, I, I can reach you. Stretch out. I can save you. Lord, save me. He stretched out his hand and got a hold of Peter. And then Jesus said to him, Oh, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Faith and doubt. I was going to show you this on the screen earlier. I want you to see it now. What is doubt? Doubt means two. Doubt means two things. Doubt in, in the English world would be someone who has a foot in two different camps. The Chinese talk about doubt and they say it's having one foot in one boat, foot in one boat, and another foot in another boat. It is being double-minded. Someone whose doubt has double-minded. In other words, we have on one side, we have faith, and we think doubt is the opposite of faith. It's not. Look at your screen. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. And doubt is in the middle. 
See? I have faith. I believe. All right, do not believe. There's unbelief, but we get caught in doubt. You know what doubt is? Doubt is Switzerland. <laughs> Boy. Because Switzerland is always neutral, are they not? But very icy, very icy. Therefore, when we have faith and doubt comes in, we do not move to unbelief. We're caught in the middle. We have two minds. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to understand it. Now, doubt can be a good thing. We need to doubt some things. Heard a commercial on TV. You can eat all you want and lose weight. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> Until I discover they're talking about lettuce. <laughs> or we're selling everything below invoice. I doubt that. So there's some things we need to doubt because doubt can be a stimulus to faith, but also there's different kind of... Doubt also can be parallel to sickness. Would you look at this. On one side, you have health. On the other side, you have death. In the middle, you have doubt. You have sickness. Now, what kind, do I have a bad cold? I'm not very sick. I've got a bad cold. I don't, but... Uh, you know, that, you know or, or do I have a, a terminal, a very serious illness that, that calls for surgery? You see, there are different kinds of illnesses. There are different kinds of doubt. Don't let some little doubt just take over and throw your faith out the window. I have discovered when I have doubted my doubts and things I have fought for and thought through and got counsel on and prayed for, that's some of the strongest positions I have in my faith and belief in God in Christ. So you doubt your doubts. So doubt is a sickness, but you don't stay sick. You get well. You deal with it proportionally as to the kind of ailment that you have to the degree of the doubt that is involved. So we, we understand that Jesus now says, oh, ye of little faith. We talked about little faith just a while back, didn't we? Remember what little faith is? Little faith is having just enough faith to receive Jesus Christ and be a Christian. That's it. Big faith is you not only have faith in Christ, but you understand because he is the son of God that how we are then to live, this is it. This is the formula. This is the recipe. This is how he wants us to live. And that moves into big faith. Now, I believe in God because he works or I, I, I'm a Christian because it worked. Christianity is proven because it works. Do you believe that? Christianity is true because it's worked. No, no, no. Christianity works because it's true. See the difference? So therefore, I don't have just enough faith to be a Christian. I know that I've moved from little faith to big faith, and I've dealt with these doubts, and they've become strongholds of my faith. Therefore, I have a strong place to stand on the truth of what God tells us and Jesus reveals to us. So in the storms of life, when they come, guess what? Jesus will meet you and me in the middle of those storms. We respond like Peter with doubt and with faith, you know, with tentative faith and then with fearful doubt. But he comes and meets our needs and takes us on board. And then notice in our scripture this beautiful, beautiful little word 
Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they, and when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Jesus had Pete in the boat. When Jesus got in the boat, the wind stopped. There'll be storms in life. Jesus will meet you and me in the middle of those storms. And when he gets in your boat, the storm stops. When Jesus gets in your boat, the storm stops. And then what did they do? They worshiped him. This is the first time we have a record of the apostles worshiping Jesus. Remember in chapter 8, Jesus was asleep. Storm came. They were afraid. Jesus spoke to the storm, the wind, and the waves, and it stopped. How did they respond to that? They said, what kind of man is this? But now when he walked on the water and he got in the boat and the storm stopped, they said, this is the Son of God. It's the first time they worshiped him. Had Jesus been worshiped before? Yes, the Magi worshiped him. The leper who was healed worshiped him. An elder in the synagogue worshiped him. This is the first worship that the apostles gave. They began to get who he is. That's what needs to happen to you and me. We begin to get who Jesus is. In the storms of life, he comes to us. And when he comes to us and we say, come on in this boat with me, the storm ceases. We understand the great ha, the great I am has come. So we talk about faith. A lot of people have the faith. Well, faith is just a Christian leaping up into the dark. The leap of blind faith. That's what those outside the family of God say. That's not Christian faith at all. Let me tell you what Christian faith is. Francis Schaeffer says, Imagine if you would, you're on a, with a tour group walking through the Alps and you walk up the mountain trails and you get out on this precipice and, and out on the precipice, the guide shows you and the tour group a beautiful view, hundreds and hundreds of feet down, but a beautiful view. But then all of a sudden, Schaefer says, a dark fog falls and just engulfs you suddenly. This happens in the Alps, by the way. And suddenly you couldn't see. And you say, well, what's going to happen? We can't get down. And you huddle up together. And the guide said, well, maybe the fog will lift. And the fog didn't lift. And the guide realized as the rocks began to turn to ice and night was coming, that they would literally die on the top of that mountain. And he tells the group that. He says, we can't go down. Impossible. It looks like we'll freeze to death on top of this mountain. I want you to be prepared. And they wait, hoping the fog will lift. It doesn't lift. It gets colder and darker and thicker. Finally, one man says to the guide, if I go over to the edge and I, I, I hang down and fall and I land on a, a little crepid rock, a little shelf of rock down there, and I can crawl into the little crevice there, could I survive the night not being on top of this mountain and not freeze to death? And the guide said, yes, if you go to the side, which they couldn't even see, and you drop down and land on a little shelf of rock, you could go in and you could probably survive the night. 
And the man says, that's what I'm going to do. And he crawls out on the rock. He turns around and he drops. And I guess they hear something like, But they wait there, colder, more ice, knowing they're going to die, and they hear a voice across the mountain, hey, hey, are you there? And they answer and say, yes, we're right here. And the man says, I know the situation you're in. He said, I was born and raised in these mountains. He said, I've been a part of the Alps community here for over 60 years. He said, let me tell you what you do. If you will take five steps to your left, you'll find a rock shaped this way. He said, if you'll turn around and slide down on that rock immediately below it and hold yourself up and then drop, you'll land on a little shelf of rock 10 feet below, and you can go in that little cave, that little crevice, and you can huddle up there, and you'll not die. You'll not freeze to death, and I'll come to get you in the morning. Schaefer said, He didn't immediately go over there and immediately drop down. He asked this guy his name. He said if he had a name of families that he knew, those family names in those Alps in that region, he said that would help. And he said he did. And he asked other information about his background, who he was, what he'd done, what he was about, to see whether or not he was an enemy or a friend. And finally, after he received that information, he went over to the side And all the group went over the side, and they turned around and dropped, and they landed on a shelf of rock. And they all huddled up inside, and they survived. And he came to get them the next morning. We think Christian faith is ah, a leap of blind faith. It's not. Christian faith is the great I am in Jesus Christ. The great ah says to us, I know exactly where you are. I know the situation you're in. Let me tell you, this is what you do, and you will go into, you will be safe, you'll be saved, and I'll come and get you in the morning, and in the morning would be Easter Sunday for you and me. That is Christian faith. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is not a leap into the dark. It is a confident leap into the light. Our thanks to Dr. Young for today's message simply titled, Doubt. And it's great to have him in the studio as we wrap up today's program. Dr. Young, you said in your message that there are different kinds of doubt, but that doubt can sometimes be a stimulus to faith. Tell me how that works. Well, it works very simply if I begin to doubt our doubts, and I alluded to that. In other words, doubt is not a bad thing. Asking questions, seeking insights is a wonderful thing. It helps us to grow spiritually, emotionally, in many areas of life. But when we let doubt dominate our agenda and dominate our thinking, we say, well, I don't know for sure. We have questions on top of questions on top of questions. And so we have to doubt our doubts. And when we do that and we see it through and see all the affirmations that are there in the presence of many doubts, many times doubting your doubts will bring you to a steadfast faith. It's almost a stimulus to growth. 
You know, Jesus says that if we only have as much faith as a mustard seed, that we can move mountains. So that must mean God can really use even a small grain of faith, right, Dr. Young? Oh, absolutely. And the mustard seed in that day was the smallest seed that they knew anything about. My dad had a country store, and, and he had a bin of seeds. And one of that bin was mustard seeds, and they're small seeds. But you plant a mustard seed, and you'll get, man, a, a bountiful crop. They just grow and, and expand. And what I think uh, Christ is saying, if we begin to act on the faith that we have in him, then that faith will grow and grow and grow. By the way, we don't say just have faith. People are like, well, you need more faith. Faith in what? Faith without an object. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Exercise the faith that you have, and you will grow bountifully, fully, and completely. And that's what he's saying. Just a little bit of faith in Christ, seeing the perspective from God that's all you'll need to get you through the rough, stormy times of doubt. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.